studying this passage, reading intently different Bible scholars, individuals much more advanced than I am. But a, a, a thought came to my mind, and the thought is this. When, when you've got a God-sized problem, then you need a God-sized solution. Up to verse 21, the Apostle Paul, as he began in chapter 1, began to lay out the condition of mankind. In chapter 1 and verse 18, we are introduced to the unrighteousness of man. And it goes through the end of chapter 1. In chapter 2, we are introduced to those who believe that they are morally okay with God. And then most recently, the Apostle Paul deals with those who believe that they are religiously okay with God. But it comes down to what he calls or what he writes for us in verse 10 of chapter 3 when he writes the epitaph on the condition of mankind when he says there is none righteous. No, not one. The world has a God-sized problem. But I'm glad God has given us a wonderful solution. And that's what we find in verse 21 that Pastor Steve read. The Apostle Paul is a master at going into, if you will, the very uh, uh, judicial part of God's kingdom. And he's developed an argument whereby now he is bringing it before the jury and us this morning. It says in verse 21, now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been revealed. Before we can dive into this, we have to come to some kind of a definition of what is the righteousness of God. What does that mean? I found two Interesting definitions. When they go something like this, righteousness in accordance with God's character is that God is first and foremost a true expression of his nature, which is perfect. God commands only what is right and what will therefore have a positive effect upon the believer who obeys. The righteousness of God also means that his actions are in accord with the law which he himself has established. Thus all that God does is right and his conduct is what he expects of others. The righteousness of God. I want you to just quickly turn with me back to the book of Psalms. I, I want you to see something and, and go back to, uh, I believe it's Psalm 7. I could be wrong. 
It'll be the first time today. I am wrong. It's not seven. In fact, I don't know what psalm it is. I lost that note. But it's the one that, and maybe you would know, and if you know, as I start to say it, then just yell it out to me, okay? You ready? The word of the Lord is true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in a honeycomb. It lists in a number of verses, and, and, and I apologize. I should step down from the pulpit and dismiss all of you. And no one said amen. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> but I literally forgot to put down, thank you, Lord, Psalm 19. There it is. Verse 7, we'll begin. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. And righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. What we find in Psalm 19 is explicit to the righteousness of God because of God's character is always to do right. Then his word is always right and unarguable because it displays his character. Now, if you're back in Romans chapter 3, We'll put this all together, hopefully in a bow, so that you can feel that you got something out of this service. And it's something like this. I want to develop the righteousness of God in these three steps. First of all, the righteousness of God is witnessed by the writings of the scriptures. The righteousness of God is witnessed by the writings of the scriptures. Secondly, the righteousness of God is demonstrated by the work of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the righteousness of God is declared by the will of God's purpose. It is witnessed by the writings of the scriptures as is demonstrated by the works of the Savior. And it is declared by the will of God's purpose, his righteousness. In the context of Romans chapter 3, we see that 
the Apostle Paul has developed this argument that all are guilty. You go back into the previous verses and chapters, you'll find out that the Apostle Paul has been talking about God's wrath and his judgment. And so when he gets to verse 21, he, when he says God's righteousness is revealed, not through the law, but through the writings of the prophets and, in, in particular, the Old Testament. So what he's talking about, the Apostle Paul is saying, now you are under the judgment of God and his righteousness. Everybody is included. We catch that in verse 23, but he develops that in verse 21. In 23 of Romans 3, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what about God's righteousness has been revealed in the scriptures? It's these things. It's not long before you open up the text and you find that in Genesis chapter 3, because of the disobedience of our first parents, God commanded that they would be expelled from the garden and their life now would become one of toil and pain. It was because of his righteousness. He could not overlook what they did and say, it's all right, I'll give you a second chance. No. God only gave them one negative command. And he said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only negative command that he gave. And they disobeyed. God's righteousness cannot and will not stand in the presence of sin. Not many generations later, God spoke to Noah. No, not the Noah at the soundboard back there. Good to see you, brother. You were given a good name. Spoke to Noah about building something that no one had ever seen before. A boat. And because Noah said, it's going to rain. Which it never did before. But God said in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, the continual heart wickedness of mankind has caused me sorrow that I even created them. Their wickedness. And because of God's righteous judgment, well, you know the story. God brought upon the earth a flood that killed every living thing, only that which was in the ark and Noah and his family, the only survivors of that time. Again, not too many 
if you will, generations go by. And you come to Genesis chapter 19. And you see two cities that are about to feel the righteous wrath of God. We call them, as according to the scriptures, Sodom and Gomorrah. Because of their wickedness, God said, I'm going to destroy them. His righteousness. We can continue to draw illustration after illustration uh, from the scriptures that witness the judgment of God, which the Apostle Paul alluded to in his writings, especially when it comes to God's judgment of sin. So we need to pause here for a couple, just a couple of moments and comment even on the present condition of our own society this day. God is not finished with our world. And we talk about climate change. Well, I read in the book of the Revelation and in First Peter or Second Peter chapter three that there's going to be a huge climate change. God's fire. He'll never flood the earth again. The rainbow is his testament and his promise of fulfillment. But what he's going to do is burn it all up. Why? Because he's righteous. And the wickedness of man again, is, if you will, evaporating into the very presence of heaven. Yet most in the most recent decades, the principles that this country were once founded upon as it was established as a nation that was to follow and worship God Decades later, we find ourselves in a horrendous situation whereby life no longer is precious. Animals are held in higher regard than human beings. And I'm still amazed that those who are in favor of abortion are alive. I'll let that sink in for a while. In Psalm 7, verse 11, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Paul has painted a pretty good picture. We've got a God-sized problem. And the problem is, is that if it wasn't for God to intervene, there would be no hope. But God in his righteousness also has provided hope. And the second issue that we deal with is, it's demonstrated in the work of Jesus Christ. The text tells us, 
Then verse 24, being justified freely by his grace, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. When we talk about God's righteousness being demonstrated by the works of Jesus Christ, our thoughts should take us instantly to Isaiah chapter 53. Time won't allow us to turn there, but I encourage you to go to Isaiah 53 and read about God's righteousness. Because in Isaiah 53, it says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was God who punished the righteous one by laying on him the unrighteousness of all mankind in order that a way has been paved of hope. You see, those in chapter 1 who were sensing that they can just go along with their own plan, and we saw the degradation, if you will, of man's society, even to the point of when it says that they knew the judgment of God, but yet they still applauded those who did those things. It's almost like the herd mentality, if you will. Well, if we just compare ourselves to our neighbors, we're okay. But the Apostle Paul rips that apart as he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then chapter 2, you get to those who are saying, well, I haven't done those things, so I'm pretty good yet. We never find individuals comparing themselves to people who are better than they. We always try to find someone in whom we can say, well, I'm not that bad, so I must be okay with God. I've never heard anybody say or even try to compare themselves to Jesus Christ. And say, I'm as good as he is. Doesn't happen. And then the religious group gets together and say, but we have the word of God. The oracles of God have been given to us. So we must be special. Exempt from God's righteous judgment over us. So when we see God's righteousness demonstrated in the works of Jesus Christ, as he hung between heaven and earth, he is called our propitiation. (coughs) Excuse me. And all of you are wondering, what does the word propitiation mean? 
just one minute, please. A simple definition of propitiation is this. That God is satisfied. He's satisfied. But in more intense definition, you've got to go back to Exodus chapter 35. And there you find what you will see there is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the lid, it is called the mercy seat. It was the place where the Shekinah glory would come and meet. And then once a year, the high priest would go in and he would have with him the blood of a precious, uh, perfect sacrifice lamb. And he would walk into the holy of holies, scared to death. Because he's wondering, even himself, am I worthy to come before God's presence? And if he was, then he would pour out the sacrifice of that blood onto the mercy seat to satisfy, to cover, if you will, the sins of the nation before God. That's propitiation. To satisfy the holy righteousness of God as he demands. And in and of ourselves we can't do that. That's why God's righteousness is demonstrated in the works of Jesus Christ. He took upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive the adoption of sons and daughters into the family of God. God was righteous in sending forth the only remedy for the unrighteousness of mankind. He sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. God's righteousness is demonstrated in the works of Jesus Christ. And through the death of Christ and his burial, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in his resurrection, God's righteous judgment was met and it was satisfied. And now our Savior sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Lastly, it says that this brings us to God's righteousness is declared by the will of his purpose. What is the will of God? Well, in 26, it says that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And down in verse 30, 
since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What is Paul getting at here? Well, obviously the term justification is only a part of the theology of salvation. It is the declaring of an individual by faith through grace, saying that God determines you're not guilty of condemnation. Well, that's just the entrance. Later on, as Paul develops the book of Romans from a theological position, we will get to sanctification. Therefore, present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy unto God, with your reasonable service. Sanctification. And then later on, chapter 12, glorification. Going, going home. Standing before God and all his glory, which at that time we will not fall short of. It is demonstrated, declared by God's will. It is the will of God that through Christ's finished work on the cross, anyone that comes by faith, Believing, as it says in verse 22, to all and on all who believe. And in believing and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, God's will is he declares you not guilty of condemnation. Christ's work, his preciousness, his righteousness has been imputed to us. Imputation means added to our account. It's like a rich man who owned a Ferrari. And he noticed that something wasn't running right with his vehicle, and so he called the headquarters in Italy. Italy sent a mechanic to fix the situation. When it was finished, the mechanic flew back to Italy and the rich man was expecting a bill in the mail, but he never got one. He called headquarters again in Italy and said, where is my bill? I expected to pay for the work that was done to fix a problem with my Ferrari, and the secretary said, Sir, there is no record of a problem with a Ferrari. I just saw a mechanic here fixing something, sir. There is no record of a problem with a Ferrari. In justification and imputation of God, of Christ's justice and righteousness to us, there will be no record in heaven that we any longer will be condemned. 
We've been set free by faith in Christ. Paul said, forget your herd mentality. Forget your moral thinking. Forget your religious standing. It is in Christ and Christ alone whereby we're set free. And from that, Paul gives the introduction very quickly and very succinctly. If we rush past it, you're going to miss it. But he says, on the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, as justified saints, we are called to walk differently according to the righteousness of God in his word. It's called sanctification. If you go quickly, you'll miss it. So God's righteousness has been witnessed by the scriptures. Demonstrated by the work of Christ. And declared by the will of his purpose. And now in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begins to unravel an argument about Abraham. How was he justified? Lord willing, we'll get there next week. But I want to at least end this morning with a question. How about you? How about you here this morning? Have you been declared by God through faith? Have you been declared not guilty? If not, then you will still be under the wrath and the condemnation of a righteous God. But there's still hope. There's still time. As Luke writes for us in the book of, Luke, a book of Acts, he says, today is the day of salvation. Do you know the Savior? According to the writings of Paul, and the righteousness of God's word, if by faith you trust in Christ, you will be declared not guilty. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, then please, by all means, don't leave today until you secure that. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, to the magnificent name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for the gift of salvation, for the declaration of being justified by grace through faith, and also for the purpose to walk in newness of life. I pray, O oh God, that everyone here would recognize that 
The days are getting darker. Nights are getting longer. And it's not just because of the change of the season. It's the condition of our society. If ever what we need is we need church to rise up and hold forth the mantle that is in Jesus Christ. In order that others can come to know him. For that cause we praise you and thank you in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen.